Father, we thank you that you are good. And that when you wound us, it is only in order to heal us. We ask tonight that you would wound us, but just for the sake of a greater healing. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a few years ago, I got rid of my smartphone and moved to a dumb phone, one of those flip phones. And I honestly underestimated the amount of envy that would create in others. If I had a dime for every time someone said, oh man, I wish I could do that. I could buy like a church building by now. (laughs) But quickly following that statement, I wish I could do that, always comes a but. But then I wouldn't have dot, 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 fill in the blank. And it's been surprising to me what goes in that blank most often. It's not a camera or access to email or fast text messaging or anything like that. It's maps. People are terrified of not having maps. Because if there's anything we want to avoid, it's being lost. Not knowing where we are, not knowing where we need to go, not knowing how to get there. Now, we knew this before smartphones, right? There's that old joke about no one, especially men, ever wanting to admit they're lost. Because it's dangerous and and scary and embarrassing and wildly inefficient to get lost. That's not only true in our cars, it's also true in our souls. We do not want to be lost, and yet we feel it. There's a reason that TV shows and movies and works of literature so often make being lost symbolic for the human condition. Because it's a universal experience for us to feel not in control, not safe, not secure, not confident in where we're going, what we're doing, or how to get there. We all have days where we feel this and we feel aimless, like we're not making any progress, like maybe we're even going backwards or just wandering around. And we also all have times where we thought we were making great progress, only to realize later that we had the wrong idea and we're heading in the wrong direction. We all get lost, but we don't all get lost in the same ways. When we think about being lost, we probably immediately think about becoming lost in doing the wrong things, losing ourselves in in, in activities or or people that don't bring flourishing or wholeness, uh, things that are against God's purposes for us. He designed us, right? He knows what brings flourishing and wholeness, but uh, we, we can get so lost in these things that everybody can see what's happening except for us. Many of us have people in our families or our friend groups or our workplaces that would fit this description. It might even fit us and we're just not ready to say it yet. We can get lost in addictions and substances and escapes, lost in doing things that feel really good, feel really right, but actually destroy us in the long run. 
It's a terrifying place to be, but actually a more terrifying place to watch someone else go. Because when you're in it, often what happens is you lose your imagination that could be any better than this. Your horizon simply becomes the next hit of drugs or sex or accomplishment or affirmation or whatever. And even if you're at a place where you can still see a way out, the road out seems so hard that it's easier just to act like you've got it all together even though you know and everybody else knows you're lying through your teeth. That's probably the first thing that comes to mind when we think about being lost, but there are other ways to be lost. The historic lectionary readings for Ash Wednesday, which we just heard read, show us that we can be lost not just in doing the wrong things, but we can actually get lost in doing the right things. There's a peculiar kind of lostness in, in those who, you know, do like the, the extra religious stuff, like come to an Ash Wednesday service. We see this all throughout the scriptures, right? Joel, which we just heard read, a prophet uh, through which God was calling his people to realize how lost they truly were, to realize their need to repent, which is just a word that means to turn around and go in a different direction. And he says to them things like, rend your heart and not your garments, This rending your garments, he's talking about this show of piety that was often made around lament or grief or mourning or repentance in the ancient Near East where where people would tear their clothes as a way of showing how much they actually meant it. We see the same kind of temptation in Matthew where Jesus is, is absolutely excoriating the religious leaders of his day, Pharisees, teachers of the law. Now I know it's customary for us to think of them as the bad guys, but But friends, if we were alive then, they would probably be our people. They had the best theology of anybody around. They had the most missional passion of anybody around. They had the most upstanding character of any group around, at least on the surface. They were the ones who cared the most of anybody around. And yet Jesus could still say of them, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites who stand on the street corners. See, the Pharisees were great at virtue. It's just that they were even better at virtue signaling. Today's versions of their actions might end up being labeled as effective Christian marketing or even bold prophetic witness. Because anything that communicates our convictions without actually costing us anything, can fall into this trap. Things like social media posts. Things like saying you're going to pray for someone instead of just like doing it right there. Things like talking really confidently about your ideas and opinions about God in a way that makes everybody think you know what you're talking about. Uh, Decorating your house with Hobby Lobby scripture quotes. I'm serious. There is a way to do public witness that doesn't actually require sacrificial personal devotion. Those don't have to necessarily be bad, but they can be. 
It can really easily fall into that. Now, maybe I'm being a little too cynical here. Perhaps we're actually trying to let other people know about the the true and the good and the holy and maybe even some of the sacrificial things we've done. We want to give testimony. We want to give glory sightings. We want to tell about what's happened that's good. But often we tell these stories in a way that makes us look good. This is so subtle. It's so subtle that it actually just happened a few minutes ago. And I bet you didn't even notice. Because when I told you about my phone, some of you were probably impressed and thought better of me. I know some of you were probably impressed because people are often impressed when I tell this story. They often like, oh, I wish I could do that. I wish I was that awesome. They, they often think I'm a more mature Christian for doing so. When the reality is that I simply do not have the fruit of the spirit of self-control to not check the news 187 times a day when I got a computer in my pocket. There's ways of turning personal weakness into stories of redemption that become marketing for our own maturity. The stories often start with, well, I was wrestling with that, but now things are better. But of course, when we were in that hard space, we didn't share it all. We just shared once we had the good marketing. But there are other ways to get lost and not realize it. We can be lost in doing the wrong things. We can be lost in doing the right things. And we can even be lost in the wrong things that others have done to us. Which is, is understandable, right? We go there because it's a real thing. Others do terrible things to us all the time, and those things need to be dealt with. They need to be named, and they need to be owned, and, the, and, and they need to be forgiven and confessed and reconciled. But something happens when we lose ourselves in looking at only the wrongs others have done only on their abuses and oppressions and foibles and mistakes. And we become so focused on what they're doing that we lose track of what we're doing. We, we, we get so busy defining ourselves as the victims, taking the moral high ground, that we lose track of the victims we're leaving in our own wake. We see this incessantly on the national stage, right? We, we focus on stopping MAGA or owning the libs because they're destroying the country. And we miss how in the ways we do that, we're also destroying the country. We see this on the world stage, right? Israel and Hamas have eyes for how they have been destroyed. And the focus is such there that it's difficult to see anything beyond it about how they might actually be destroying. As if their capacity to do wrong somehow cancels out the other's capacity to do wrong. Or how what they've done wrong cancels out our capacity to do wrong. There's no canceling, it just adds. Sometimes those, those evils hit closer to home, right? They're, they're not just something we see on the news, there's something that happens in us and to us. But friends, in those situations that you, many of us, I'm sure, carry with us, I want you to hear that you are not just what has been done to you. You are not defined or controlled. Your destiny is not set by someone else's sin, by someone else's evil. 
that gives them too much power. We still have agency in how we respond. We still have the capacity and the responsibility not to continue the cycle of harm, but to stop it. Not to lash out in vengeance, but but to redemptively deal with the pain. It's possible to nurture those wounds to the point that an offer of healing sounds like a threat. And we can get lost. There are many ways to do this, and all of them are hard to admit. So we spend a lot of energy, a lot of time, trying to prove that's not us. Trying to prove to ourselves and others that we're on the right track, that we're in the right, that we know where we're going, we know what we're doing, uh, at least more than they do. To confess that we are lost feels like the worst thing we could do, the worst place we could be. When in reality, friends, that is the only way to be found. Confessing that we're lost is actually the trailhead that leads to life as it's meant to be because being lost and knowing it is actually far less dangerous than being lost and not knowing it because at least when we're lost and we know it, we're looking for the way out. See, the real spiritual dividing line is not between those who are lost in the wrong things and those who are lost in the right things, those uh, who are lost in the wrong things others do and lost in the wrong things they do. The real spiritual dividing line is between those who are lost and know it and those who still have no idea. Being lost is not the ultimate problem. Not realizing you're lost, thinking you're found when you're not, is the real danger. We see this all over the Gospels, but especially in Luke 15. Some of you are familiar with that chapter. All through the season of Lent, we're going to be preaching through that chapter, and it contains three stories of lost things the lost sheep, the lost coin and the lost sons. Now, these are some of the most well-known and well-loved of all the stories of Jesus. But when you know the context around them, they mess with you because they're confounding to our sensibilities. It helps to know the context in which Jesus is telling these stories. Listen to how chapter 15 of Luke starts. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. That's the people who are lost in the wrong things. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. What's the difference between those two groups, friends? The Pharisees are are neck deep and very, very good things, and the tax collectors and sinners are neck deep in in very, very wrong things, right? That's kind of a, a technical phrase in the New Testament for, like, the bad people. But that's not actually the difference that's most important. The important difference is only one of them knows they're lost. Only one group knows that they need to be found. Only one group knows that they've broken relationship with God and need to be reconciled. Only one group knows they're hungry and are actually ready to feast with Jesus. 
Only one group knows that they don't know where they are and they don't know where to go, but this man does. So tonight, we're invited to become like those tax collectors and sinners. They are our model. They are our goal. Tonight and the rest of Lent really is a spiritual journey designed to build in us the courage to say, you know what, the biggest problem I face is me. And I'm ready for some help. Because tonight we are confessing before God and one another that we are lost, that I am lost, that you are lost. Tonight, we're going to receive ashes on our foreheads as a, as a reminder of our death and as a declaration even that that death is deserved, that we are assenting and, and, and consenting to that death. Why? Not because like we believe that God is mean and that he's angry and he just wants to wipe us off the face of the earth. No, death is nothing more than the natural consequence of our rejection of him, of our wandering away from him and getting lost. Right? Parents, you understand natural consequences, right? If God is the one who made us and is the source of life for us, if we walk away from him, what else can we expect? Stop breathing and you suffocate. Stop eating and you starve. Get lost in the wilderness and you perish. Walk away from the source of life and we die. And tonight we're saying, yeah, that's what's happened. That's where I'm at. But that's not going to be just tonight. All during Lent, we're invited to engage practices designed to remind us of that need, designed to remind us of that reality. At IAC, we're inviting everyone to confess sin to God with another person. You saw some pamphlets on the way in, uh, perhaps, that can help guide you in that journey. If you didn't, you can get them on the way out. That sounds terrifying. We're inviting you into the classic Lenten disciplines of fasting to remember that you're empty. Fasting is not fun. It's hard. We're inviting you to give financially to recognize the dangers of feeling full. We all want to feel full. We're inviting you to pray and to read scripture as a reminder that you cannot do this on your own. There's a a reason that Lent has the reputation that it has. This whole season could be hard and painful and uncomfortable. It can feel a little bit like a dying, right? It can make God seem harsh. It can make Christians seem like these people who just like are trying to tell you you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. But friends, what we are doing this night is we're saying that something beyond where we are is possible. We are not pessimists on human nature. We are optimists. Because God made us good and is remaking us even better. And if this is as good as it gets, no one is to be more pitied than us. Admitting that we're lost keeps the dream alive, that there is more than this. Keeps hope alive, that there is more than we are meant for. And that someone can actually bring us there. 
So friends, the pain of admitting that we're lost and we don't know what we're doing and we don't know where we're going, that is only birth pains. It is, it is just the necessary preparation for being found. Because God knows we're lost. He knew it way before we woke up to it. And he has come for us in our wilderness. God knows that we've walked into death. So what does he do? He comes into death to bring us out. God knows that we are empty and famished. So he, in his love for us, empties himself so that we can come to his table and be filled. See, that's why you're not just going to come forward once tonight. You're going to come forward twice. You're going to come forward first to receive ashes on your forehead as a sign of your death, as a sign of your lostness, but those are going to wash off. You'll come forward a second time to receive another sign of death. Not yours, but his. You'll come forward to receive a sign of faithfulness, not yours, but his. You'll come forward to, uh, to receive another sign of journey into the wilderness, not yours, but his. And this sign you won't just put on your forehead. You'll eat it. It won't wash off. It'll become a part of you. Its atoms will become your atoms. It will indwell you and feed you and sustain you as a sign that as soon as we say we're lost, we're found by him. And he brings us into life as it's meant to be, life to the full, in a way that we can never be separated from. Because that is what God yearns for us, not to beat us over the head, but to wound us just so we might be healed more fully. The cost to him of that healing was great. But the cost to us is nothing but our pride. May we gladly pay it. And may we know the joy that comes from being found. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this evening we invite you to wound us. We ask that you would be gentle, but also strong. That you would reveal your love to us that loves us too much to leave us where we are. And that we would be content and even feel the freedom of saying that we need help and finding you there with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.